Well, so we are at this verse for a particular reason. It is the day before Christmas, so I thought it'd be appropriate to do sort of a Christmas sermon. Well, what I want to do is focus here just on this particular phrase here in Isaiah chapter 9. Just that first phrase there in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So as we do this, we are all sitting in here as products of our culture in good ways and in bad ways. And one of those ways being the fact that we all know what Christmas time is for. At least most people recognize what Christmas time is for, right? Christmas time is to remember the coming of Christ into the world and then what? To give thanks to God for that. That is like a basic standard default meaning of Christmas. And even an unbelieving person probably knows that meaning of Christmas. And so you're, you, you guys think about the most popular verse there in the Bible, John 3.16, and it says this, For God so loved the world that He did what? Right, He gave, right? We all, we all had the verb there, perfect. He gave, right? And we remember this because this is what Christmas is all about for us. We give, but we do so in light of the fact that God so loved the world and that He gave. But the question is, what did He give? What, is, what does the text say there? He gave His only begotten Son. This is what God gave to us. And so Christmas then is this remembrance of this great act of God whereby He gave us His only begotten Son. And He gifted it to us. That's what it means that God gave it to us. It wasn't something we had earned. It was something that God had gifted to us. Brethren, we all know this story way too well in our own culture. And the problem is we probably know this story all too well. And I think this is the problem. (laughs) We know this story too well. You've heard it a dozen times. If you were born and raised here in America, you've heard it probably your whole entire life. And so we all know these facts, right? Even the songs that we sing. You can go hear these songs on on TV or, or, or people who don't even believe the lyrics but sing the songs because they know all these different things about Christmas. And brethren, the temptation could become for us, even as Christians, that we are easily emptied of the meaning and the significance of Christmas because of how uh, just mundane these things be, but because of all the repetition of these things. And, and, and what I mean by this is not that we end up denying the truthfulness of these things or uh, we, we end up denying the, the miraculous nature of what Christmas is, right? The, the son born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, right? Not, not that they become so mundane that we, that we start to not believe them or start to deny the truthfulness of them. But brethren, what we do end up doing is we forget the significance of the things that we're singing and the things that we're celebrating, right? Have you not done that with Christmas? Forgotten the significance and therefore, brethren, you've lost your proper gratitude in response to the fact that God came into the world. And I stand there with you. And brethren, when we forget the significance of God sending His Son into the world, then brethren, what we end up doing is we actually lose a proper response to God giving the great gift of His Son, right? So if I were to ask you this morning, and you had to take a test or exam on this, and I said, what is the significance of God sending His Son into the world? What's the significance of that? Can you answer that question? Or have you just memorized facts about Christmas? Do you know biblically 
why it is even important and significant that God came into the world through His Son. So maybe you do, brother, maybe you don't. But an even more important question is, was we'll hear all the facts this morning as we go through this text. But the more important question for you this morning is this. Brethren, even if you do, or even if you learn these facts this morning, the question that's going to be pressed upon you is, does it move you? Are you moved by the news? Do you respond appropriately? When God hands you freely the gift of His Son, what is your response? This is what matters, brethren. But in order for you to do that, for us to do that, we've got to come back to the simple question of what is the gift, right? We need to comprehend the actual weightiness of what God has given to us so that our response would be appropriate to the gift given, right? You don't respond appropriately to a stick being given to you, but you would respond appropriately if I gave you a bag full of cash, well, brethren, the same is there's weightiness in this. What God gave is weighty. And so we want our response to be weighty. And so we need to go back and ask the question, what gift did God give? And the answer to that that we all know is His Son. This is the gift. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to briefly consider the gift of God's Son. And I want to do so by looking at the gift of the Son in two distinct ways. First, I want to look at what was this Son going to be, right? What was the Son going to be? What role was He coming to do and perform? And then second, I want to look at what was the Son going to do? So well, as he comes, what's he going to be? What kind of person is he going to be? What's his role going to be? But second is, what, what is the son going to do when he comes? What is the son go, going to accomplish by coming into the world? And brethren, I think if we can look at both of those things, then we can see the gift rightly again. We can see its weightiness. And hopefully, brethren, we can respond appropriately and rightly to the gift that God has given to us in his son. So let's look at this first one here this morning. What will this son be? And obviously, for this point, I cannot exhaust this. The, the, the things I want to hit on to this morning, hopefully you've been paying attention to the scriptures being read, are related to these Christmas scripture readings that we did this morning. I will not be able to exhaust this, but I do want to draw, I think, two key important aspects that the Bible itself draws out as it relates to the coming of the Son into the world. And so the first one is going to be this. Who was the Son going to be? Well, first, the Son was going to be a Savior or Deliverer. And this promise, brethren, is one that goes all the way back to where? This promise of a Savior or Deliverer. Where does it begin in the Bible? Amen, brother. Genesis. Genesis. All the way back to the beginning. So, this promise goes all the way back to the beginning of, of, of time itself, where we have this, this promise of one who's going to come, and he's going to be a savior or deliverer. And we see that the Son is promised to us as one who's going to come and save us and deliver us from the curse. And you see this promise explicitly for the first time, in Genesis chapter 3. 
that a son is going to come, and he's going to be a savior or deliverer. So this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So notice those pronouns right there. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, you get this promise that there's going to be this seed, this child, this offspring, one who's going to come from the woman. And what's going to come from the woman? A son is going to come from the woman who's going to come and be a great what? A savior and deliverer. And so guess what? Adam and Eve, they hear this promise and immediately they begin to anticipate that God's going to give them a son and that he's actually going to come and do this very thing and deliver them. And you see this immediately in the next chapter. You notice Eve's response to the birth of her next two sons, Cain and Seth. Look, look with me with, at these two. Notice Eve's responses to the birth of her next two sons, Cain and Seth. This first one is Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, in regards to Cain. Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, now listen to what she says about Cain, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now you can think about it another way. I've gotten a son. Here's a man. Here, here's one. I was promised that he's going to come from me, and he's going to come and be this great deliverer. And then Cain comes, and she says, she starts saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This might be it. We know Cain's not it. Cain shows himself to be a seed of the serpent. So, Seth gets born, and now look at Adam and Eve's response again. Here we see this in Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, now listen to what she says about this son. God has appointed for me another, this is the same word there in Genesis 3, seed or offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So, brethren, listen. Eve right here, and obviously with Adam, they are anticipating that a son's going to come and that he's going to accomplish what God promised there in Genesis chapter 3, that a son's going to come and save and deliver. However, we get an even more explicit reference to as, the, as to what the role of this son is going to take as we look to someone like Noah. And he foreshadows what this son is going to do. So go over one more chapter to Genesis chapter 5. And so you notice here, once again, in this nice little line now, people like to pronounce things about their sons because they're looking for one. And notice what is said about Noah here in Genesis 5.28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And called his name Noah, saying, now listen, here's another son. Listen to what's said about the son. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, who's the one? The son, Noah. 
This one shall what? Bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Brethren, why is there such an anticipation and expectation with the coming of each son in the Old Testament? Well, brethren, it's because there was a promise and expectation that there would ultimately be a son who would come and deliver all of his people and deliver the world. This son was going to be this great Genesis 3 savior and deliverer of the whole world. And so we see this. The Son was expected to come and to be a Savior, a Deliverer. But second, the Son was also expected to be a King. So not only was the Son promised, He would come and save, He would come and deliver. Yes, this is true, but there's more. The Son was also promised who would come and He would be established as a King over the whole world, right? Not just any king, right? Not, not just a little king in a little area, but the king of kings, as we often refer to Jesus, right? He's going to be this great king over all the earth. And so the promise of a son who would be king over all the earth, we find this stated first explicitly here in Genesis 49. And we get it stated by Jacob when he's blessing his sons. And so once again, here we get the blessing and the naming of these sons, and I want you to pay attention again to what is said about another son. What is he going to be? You notice what Jacob says in particular here about Judah, this son, this seed of the woman. This is Genesis 49.10. Listen to this one. This is about Judah, this son. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. You're thinking, scepter? What on earth is that? Well, let's look at the next line. It'll help, help define it for you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, brethren, right here, you get this direct explicit statement that this son who has been promised and is making his way through this lineage, when we get to Judah, he is spoken of as one who is going to come and be a what? He's going to be a king. Well, how do you know he's going to be a king? He's going to have a scepter in his hand and he's going to have a ruler's staff between his feet and tribute is going to come up to him. Well, brethren, you bring tribute to a king. And so this, this promise right here, that the Son is also going to be a king, is something that covers the entire Old Testament. Brethren, there is one who is going to come, who is going to take up rulership and dominion, and he is going to be crowned king over all, and all will render obedience to him. And this was Isaiah's hope, and this is what we heard in that scripture reading in Isaiah chapter 9, that a son would be given, and that he would be made what? A king to sit on the throne forever. So the son that was going to come, he was going to be what? A savior or deliverer. And the son was going to be a king. Now, now that we know what the son's going to be, what, what was the son going to do? What will the son do? Well, what's he going to accomplish? 
once again, can't exhaust this one either, but I do want to focus on some of the things that we hear in some of these texts that we often hear during Christmas. So first is this, the Son came to save us from our sins. Brethren, this is the clear and explicit testimony of Scripture. Matthew's Gospel probably gives the the nicest and neatest reference to this in all of the Bible. That the Son who was to come would save His people from sin. Matthew 1, 20-21. But as he considered these things, this is Joseph, Behold, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Brethren, sin is the thing that we needed saving from. We needed to be delivered and rescued from the power and effect of sin. And this was the reason why the promise of a son was actually given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and then what happens? The whole world gets plunged into sin. And I want us to think about that. Because we, 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 just, we live now so far away from that. And we read it and we hear it so much without really thinking about that again. How awful it is that the world was plunged into sin. Because listen, the idea that the world's plunged into sin here is not just some bare statement of fact. Yeah, the world's in sin. Okay, moving on. No, 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 no. It's not just a pronouncement. God didn't just say, world's plunged into sin now, and it's just bare words. It's not just... It's not a statement of, of fact or just, hey, you're all guilty. No, brethren. When the world was plunged into sin, it was plunged into sin's power. Sin was like this great power or being that took control and it ravaged us. Sin had a hold and power over everyone and everything. You remember that warning there to Cain. Right In Genesis chapter 4, you guys remember the warning to Cain as he's sitting there angry that he's not being accepted by God? You remember what was said to him? Right? What, what, what is said to Cain? Sin is what? Yeah, it's crouching at the door. And its desire is to rule over you. Brethren, you think about that. What is sin pictured doing? It's pictured as crouching. It's being personified as a beast waiting for its prey. It was, it's ready, brethren. And why is it being pictured like this? Well, because sin, brethren, is not just a statement about who we are, but it is a power, brethren. And it's being displayed as a power that seeks to dominate you like a lion would dominate its prey. And this is why Cain is told, you have got to rule over that thing. Take dominion over that thing. But he can't. He can't. Why? Because sin already has power over him. He can't do it. 
And it didn't stop with Cain, brethren. Listen, we know sin had power and dominion over the world because God pronounces this very thing just a couple chapters later in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord says this. He looks down and it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why? Because sin had its power over us. And brethren, we needed saving from sin not only because it had this great power over us to cause us to do evil and wickedness, but brethren, even more importantly than that, we needed rescue from sin's power because of what sin produces. Oh yeah, sin produces wickedness and evil, but you know what the effect of that is? Death. That's what sin produces, right? Sin has the power to, to, to produce death through us. And thus, brethren, sin became your mortal enemy because it produced death in you and it produced death in the world. So what, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Brethren, sin came into the world and had its way with us. And brethren, we weren't just under its pronouncement as guilty. We were under its power and we suffered its penalty, death. All sinned. And guess what? All died. This is why the Son needed to come. Brethren, sin had its way. And He needed to redeem the sons of men from sin's power and effect. And brethren, listen to this. Before this promised son would come, who would save us from sin's power, you know what happened to every other son in the Bible? Yeah, who said it? They all died. Every single one. Go back to those boring, long genealogies, and you ask yourself, why are they so long? Well, what's the point? All the sons are dying. All of them. Cain died. Seth died. All of them. They lived and they died. 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 But I thought there was a promise of a son. They lived and they died. Brethren, we needed someone to come because all of them are dying because sin had its power and dominion. So brethren, we needed a son to come. We needed a son given who would save us from the power and effect of sin. But second, and this is related, the Son came to give us relief from our enemies. Not, Not only were we in need of deliverance and saving from sin, but brethren, you needed deliverance and saving from enemies. While you were still under sin's power and penalty, brethren, even now, Outside of sin's power and penalty and in Christ, you had and still have enemies. And brethren, while you were under sin's power, you were controlled by spiritual and demonic forces who were your enemies. I mean, we have read this one so many times now. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 2. Hear it again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins of which, uh, uh, in which you once walked. Doing what? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work 
and the sons of disobedience. Brethren, listen, you were controlled by these forces, manipulated by them. You were forced to walk according to to their will. But here's here's the even bigger kicker in it. They were your enemies. You were walking in accordance with the ones that hated you. Brethren, and this is how this thing goes. Under sin's power and under these demonic influences and under the rule of our enemies, your enemies used you. Your old gods manipulated you for their own ends. And guess what? Didn't they leave you dry? They were mute and dumb idols and gods. And guess what they caused you to be? Mute and dumb yourself. They demanded life from you, brethren, and they never gave you life back in return. Brethren, these powers that we were under control, like Satan, the chief himself, they are liars and murderers from the beginning, as the Bible says, seeking to devour whom they will. Brethren, these powers wanted your life, and they wanted you damned. And they, brethren, therefore, are truly your greatest enemies, and you are under their sway. And we needed a son for this. We needed a son because all sons were under this. We needed a son who would come, brethren, and they would come and do what? He would tear down these powers. He'd remove these powers from their high places. We needed a son, brethren, who'd come and bind the strong man. Because, brethren, without it, you would have remained a slave and you would have perished under your old master. But, We hear these beautiful words of Zechariah there in Luke as the Holy Spirit fills him and causes him to prophesy. You listen to what this son was going to do from his own lips. Brethren, this is why we needed a son. Because Zechariah says this in Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 71. We needed a son. And then quoting the verse, that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we. Being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Might serve him without fear. That's why we needed a son brethren. To be delivered from our enemies. And to serve God without fear fear. But brethren, third, not only was the Son going to come and He was going to remove sin and forgive sin, not only is He going to come and give you relief from your enemies, here's the grandest of them all. The Son was going to come and establish a kingdom. This really is the grandest of all these, brethren, out of all three. We needed, and I want you to think this way, You needed, you needed a son to come into the world and establish his kingdom of which he would rule over forever and ever. And that could be the greatest possible news and the greatest possible thing that could be done for you. And brethren, I think this is probably hard for us to think this way because we don't really understand or comprehend the significance of this. And this is because what we've done with Christmas and what we've done with Christ and what we've done with the gospel Many of us, brethren, have reduced the significance of Christ coming into the world to simply the forgiveness of sins. And now hear me out on that. I just did a whole point on it. I believe it with all my heart. And it was vital and it was important. But brethren, listen to this. 
the forgiveness of sins is important. It's one of the main reasons why Jesus came. But listen, the forgiveness of sins is not the only reason for Christ coming into the world. And, hear me on this one, it's not the main reason why Christ came into the world. Yes, Christ had to come into the world to forgive sinners. He had to come and bring us relief from our enemies. But brethren, this is not the main reason why He came. He came to establish something. And He came to establish a kingdom. You guys recall that reading in Isaiah 9 that our brother read this morning? You guys tell me, do you recall what Isaiah says the reason was that the Son was given to us? Why did the Son come into the world? What does Isaiah say was the reason that the Son came into the world? Yes. What else? He's going to sit on his throne. He's going to sit on a throne and establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness forever. Listen to this again. Listen to the reading here again in Isaiah 9. Because Isaiah is telling you why Jesus came into the world. Why did the Son come in here? For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to what? To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Brethren, Isaiah says that the main reason the Son came into the world was to establish his kingdom and his reign. That the Son would come and establish righteousness and justice, and then what would abound because of this Son's kingdom? Peace. <laughs> that peace would abound. This is what Christ came to do. This was the main thing that the Son was given for. He was given, brethren, because this was what the world was always created for. This is not something new. Brethren, this is what the world's always been created for. In the beginning, what did God do? God made the world. He made man. And then what was man supposed to do? Be God's image bearer and do what? Fill the whole earth and thereby cover the earth in God's glory. You've heard this before. God's original plan from the beginning, His goal was that the worship of the triune God would cover the earth. And guess what? Adam failed to accomplish that. He, as God's son, failed. And so we needed a new son to be given who would succeed. Brethren, we needed a son given to us who wouldn't just right all the wrongs caused by sin and death and by God's enemies. Yes, we needed that. Brethren, we needed more than that. We needed a son given who would fill the whole earth with God's glory so that peace and righteousness and justice would abound. This, brethren, is the chief act that the Son was given into the world to do. He will 
fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. Brethren, this is the goal of history and it is the main reason why Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Because he sent that son into the world, brethren, to save it and to fill it with worshipers. So you can think, wow, let's wrap it up now, right? Those, those are all the facts. Why, why was the son given to us? What's important about that? Well, he's going to be what? A savior, a deliverer. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to come. He's going to redeem us from sin's power. He's going to come and give us relief from our enemies. Brethren, he's going to come and, and he's going to establish this kingdom. Brethren, and we think, wow, the significance of Christ coming into the world and of what we celebrate at this time is really magnificent because this is why the Son came into the world. And now you can answer the question, what is the significance of Him coming? And now you got your answers. But, brethren, we've got to come back to that last question at the beginning. What is your response? Because this is actually of greatest importance. As it relates to all these facts this morning, this, these great realities of Christmas, brethren, it's going to mean very little if you do not respond to this rightly. Because this is the thing that the Scripture is actually concerned with. This is the thing that Scripture wants us to give consideration to. Brethren, when, 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 when the Bible gives the revelation of the Son of God being given into the world, that He's coming, being born of a virgin, lying there in a manger. Brethren, you will be surprised that the Bible gives that information to us so that it could record the responses of people for us. Brethren, you would be blown away if you went back through the New Testament there in those first couple chapters of the Gospels and you count how many people's responses to this great news are recorded in your Bible. And then you need to ask yourself, huh, I wonder why the Bible records all these people's responses. Well, brethren, listen, it's not a coincidence. And it also just wasn't just by happenstance that it, that, that it happened. Brethren, the Bible purposefully records the responses of others to this great news because it wants you to consider how your response ought to be to this news. Brethren, they're instructive for us. And so I want you to consider this as we end here. I want you to consider with me the responses of others and the choice that therefore lies before you this morning on what to do with this great news. The first one is this, brethren. Is your response going to be like one of King Herod and the Jews? Matthew 2, 3, I just want you to listen to these. Don't flip here, just listen to these. Will your response be like Herod and the Jews? This is Matthew 2, 3. Listen to this. When Herod the king, ooh, he's an important guy, isn't he? Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Brethren, you imagine that. The great awaited king is pronounced as arrived, the savior of the world and the consolation of Israel, and it troubles him. Why is that? Well, brother, maybe it's because Herod likes being king. 
Maybe Herod looks at himself and says, hey, I like, I like being ruler. And he can't bear, brethren, the thought of someone else ruling over him. He can't. His, 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 he's got that crown on his head and he's got the crown on his heart. His ego is too big. He can't bear the thought. But brethren, question is, can you bear the thought? Are you able to bear the thought that a king would come into the world and demand of you allegiance and obedience while he's lying in a manger? Brethren, if that troubles you, the question is, will you deal with it? Because Herod could have dealt with it, right? Well, guess what? Herod doesn't. What does Herod, what, what does Herod do? Well, he doesn't humble himself. What does his heart become? His heart becomes proud and he becomes hardened to the news all the way to the extent now, what does Herod do next right after this? Our brethren, Herod kills all the male children in Bethlehem. And I want you to think about this as we've used this phrase a lot. He kills all of the newborn sons given in Bethlehem and becomes just like his father, the devil. Right? That's what Herod becomes. He hears the news. He's troubled by it. He hardens his heart to it because he's too proud and brethren, he wages war against the son by killing all these other sons. But brethren, there's another response here. The response of being indifferent to this news. Notice who Herod calls to himself. Right after this section, right? Herod hears of this news. And you know what he brings to himself? He assembles some people to himself he assembles the scribes and the chief priests, right? And who are these people in the Bible, brother? The scribes and the chief priests. Well, these are, these are the party of the Pharisees and the Sadducees all combined together. These, these chief priests and these scribes who would have, who would have been studiers and copiers of, of the Bible, the Old Testament, who would know it front to back. And so these people are the most religious most respected people of all of Israel. He called them the best of the best, right? The best of Israel comes unto Herod. And brethren, look, they're good Bible readers. They know, based upon what we see in Matthew, they know where the Messiah is going to be born. They're not ignorant of the Bible. Herod says, hey, I'm very troubled by this. What's going on? They're like, well, there's a prophecy that this one's going to come and be born where? In Bethlehem. They know their Bible, right? They know of the same promises, too, of the Magi who had just come to Herod. And what did the Magi tell the king? Hey, we saw his star in the sky, and we come to worship the king of the Jews, right? Do you think these scribes and these Pharisees know of the same promises and are aware of it? Oh, brethren, you better believe they're aware of it. They know that promise in Numbers, right? That a star is going to arise in Judah, and this is going to be the ruler. This is going to be the king. And so, brethren, listen, I can't imagine that the Magi from the East, right? These Magi who don't live anywhere near where, where the Jews do and don't have nearly the revelation that they do. These Magi travel all the way from the East, right? And they, they are the ones who see this star, right? And, the, and these scribes and these chief priests, they've got to know that this sign is there because these magi all the way in the east know that this star is here, that this great sign has appeared, and now they're coming to see the king. And you would think to yourself, you think the chief priests and the scribes would know this too? That they would recognize this too? And yet, brethren, here is the crazy thing. They are not willing to move an inch to inquire about the prophecy, 
They're not willing to move for it. Even though it's being fulfilled right before their eyes. Brethren, these chief priests and scribes, they're indifferent to this news. I mean, here come these foreigners. They got no inheritance in Israel, right? But yet they're more eager and aware to leave their home and country to follow the star that leads to the newborn Savior. But these religious elites, Israel best, who even know the town to go to, can't get off their behind to go check it out. Brethren, what a response! What a response! What a trifling response to news! The star's been born, the Savior's in Bethlehem, and they don't move an inch to go inquire for it. These pagan outsiders are the ones who make their way in. Brethren, they're not bothered to do a thing about the news. And that's just as bad as Herod's response. Is that your response to the news? You might not rage against it, but you're indifferent to it. Well, brethren, listen, it is just of an offense to the God, the Son of God, to be indifferent towards the news of his rival. It is an offense. They should have gotten up and beat those magi to Bethlehem. And they didn't because they were indifferent to it. But brother, what happens if you remain indifferent? Well, I'll tell you. You don't remain indifferent. You might be indifferent now, but you don't remain indifferent, right? The scribes and the chief priests, in the beginning, they're indifferent. Nothing's really affecting them. Nothing really seems to concern them at the moment. Ah, there's some news over there about some baby lying in a manger. Whatever. But then you know what happens on, you know what happens later? They don't remain indifferent to Jesus as he grows up. And they don't remain indifferent to Jesus as he goes around and he continues to press upon them the kingdom. They become hardened just like Herod did. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear where the, the scribes and the chief priests pop up again in, the, in Matthew. This is Matthew 26, beginning here in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And there had been a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Now, brethren, listen, what's going on right now? Well, this is at the trial and hearing of Jesus, right? This is at the trial and hearing of Jesus before he's crucified before Pilate. And so here he is gathered with all these Jews in front of him. And he's asking them, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, which means son of the father, or Jesus, who is called Christ. And then listen, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now look down in verse 20 in Matthew 26. Notice who pops up on the scene again. It's these indifferent chief priests and scribes and these elders. Verse 20. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus? who is called Christ. And they all said, let him be crucified. 
You will not remain indifferent to Christ, brethren. You will not remain indifferent to the news that the King has been born. Indifference will always turn into opposition towards Christ because He demands your allegiance and obedience. He demands a proper response to coming into the world. But these aren't the only responses. (laughs) You are also, brethren, instructed in the right response by the godly. And I want you to hear this because I had to throw these together in a list. I can't go to all these. But I want you to hear all the responses the New Testament records, brethren, to instruct you this morning. How do the godly respond to such news? Well, brethren, John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb at the hearing that Mary was to bear the Son of God. A baby leapt in the womb. The proper response. (laughs) Elizabeth and Mary, filled by the Holy Spirit, break out in song and praise and prophesy. Brethren, a proper response to the news about the Son who was to come. Zechariah's mouth, brethren, was opened up to proclaim the wonders of God at the realization that the Son was going to arrive. Probably my favorite. Simeon, brethren, as it says of him, awaited with eagerness the revelation of God's salvation, and he was ready to greet death as a friend at the revelation of God's salvation by seeing his son. He was ready to to greet death as a friend. And then, brethren, listen, the angels, they break out in song at the birth of the son. The shepherds at night, they get filled with fear and amazement, and it says they made haste to see this newborn son. And these magi from the east, outsiders from the nations, left home and country to come find this son and bow down and worship him. So, Redeemer, listen. Let that be our response. Be instructed by the godly. Let us break forth in song. Let us lift up prayers in adoration, brethren. Let us set the Lord's table today with bread and wine in celebration for a feast. Let us, therefore, brethren, be at peace with our God, at peace with one another. Why? For to us a child is born, brethren, and to us a son is given. Let's pray.